Hello, dear friend. The white noise is hissing in the next room, and I'm speaking in my creepy ASMR voice, which can only mean it's time for another episode of Death of a Thousand Cuts, and I'm recording the intro to a chat. Today's chat is with a wonderful author, Andrew Cowan, who, I guess this is just a really... I never have anyone on who I'm completely indifferent to or just like, well, you, you might like them, they're not my cup of tea. I, I'm always, you know, I always get people on because at some level I'm really interested in their work. But having Andrew Cowan on was particularly special for me because he he was my first creative writing teacher. I had him as a tutor when I was 18 and I first went on an Arvon writing residential and then I met him again when I came to UEA he didn't teach me there but he was uh, well we he talks about that actually he talks about that in the episode but um and then he eventually went on to become director of the creative writing uh, program at UEA the University of East Anglia arguably one of the most prestigious creative writing MAs in the world and uh, well, not I happen to have graduated from, but we and we talk about that. But he, you know, he, he is an experienced and really, really excellent author. And I'm not just saying that because <laughs> I've got uh, you know because we've got a history, and I've, I'm particularly fond of him. Uh, he is. I really, really love his writing. There's something. He's the real deal. And when I first started reading his work, I just there's a real care on the line makes me engage with the work with my mind and my heart I really really love his books and we talk about them in some detail um but it it, it just it's just, I just thought it'd be worthwhile your hearing from essentially my my mentor my one of my key uh, so many right authors that I've talked to is talk about and me and Andrew talk about this actually having this kind of like figure in your life who hands down some knowledge who makes you see who sees something in you who helps you out who gives you some kind of wisdom who give teaches you some key lessons and uh andrew was one of those people for me and so i got him on to talk about his work we talk about everything from his first novel pig which uh, won the betty trask award uh he did the sunday times young writer of the year award the authors club first novel award uh the Ruth Haddon Memorial uh, Award, and it was shortlisted for five other awards. Like, it was a really, you know, it was... <laughs> and it's, it's great, and we talk about that in, in some detail as well. But then he's done several novels since then, including uh, his fifth novel, Worthless Men, which came out in 2013, and I just loved it. It just blew me away. And so I wanted to talk to him about the research that went into that one, uh, because it's set during the First World War. And also he's written this amazing uh, creative writing guidebook, uh, The Art of Writing Fiction, which he's about to do an update on, actually, he, he mentions. Anyway, and he teaches, and he's a very, very experienced teacher of creative writing at all different levels. And so I just wanted to get him on so you could hear from one of the most qualified creative writing teachers in the country. You know, I, maybe he would sort of resist that characterization, but... Aside from being an amazing author whose work that I know by the end of this episode you're going to want to go out and read, um, 
he's also you know one of the foremost uh voices for creative writing pedagogy you know in the in the country easily i would it would be, i'd struggle to to name someone who i'd named before him in terms of knowing about how you think about helping each other with creative writing and teaching fiction and the number of people that he has number of amazing authors that he has coached and trained is is quite incredible so I'm not going to keep going on any more than that, um, except to just remind you that I'm going to put links to his novels in the show notes and on my website. Really, really, really do recommend that you pick one of his five books and go and have a read. You really can't miss. Um, but if you listen to the t- to us chatting, then you'll get a sense of what each of them are about and that will um, help you pick. But I, re- I, I just do not think that... On a per- on a perfectly mercenary level, right? It is impossible that you will not learn a great deal from reading one of Andrew's novels. You just can't. He knows what he's doing, and it's uh, and it's a real treat to read. This is somebody who's and we talk a bit about perfectionism as well, which is the kind of dark side of, of that tension to the line. Um, and just to say, look, if you enjoy the show, then please, uh, I've got a little link to my coffee page which is where you can just chuck a couple of it's like the digital guitar case right you can chuck a couple of quid into the hat and uh, help me cover hosting costs and Andrew asked me actually before we did the interview he said who's paying for all of this how do you how do you afford to do this and as you, you know the, the the answer is I I don't can't really afford to do it it costs me money to do it it's not it's not a good career move I just love it and I love it deep in my heart and I'm learning so much that I'm just taking a risk. But if you want to help me out to it so at least I can keep my website online, God, that sounds a bit too desperate. I'm having a wonderful time and don't worry, I will I will try to make sure that I make sensible choices so me and my daughter aren't out, out, out on the street. But you can help with that because she might be. Um... No, I am genuinely joking. Sorry, I've realised sometimes when I make jokes that the uh, irony is occasionally lost. Um, I, I'm joking, but uh, anything you can do to support the podcast is is, is very, very welcome. Right, that's it. Uh, here is me chatting to author and teacher Andrew Cowan. Please enjoy. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and today I'm in the end room of my house yet again, the uh, hallowed space where so many writers have come as the room has been slowly built around us and today I am speaking to author and uh, professor of creative writing at UEA, Andrew Cowan. How are you, Andrew? Oh, all right, you nearly said procrastinator in creative writing. Yes. I am a procrastinator in creative writing at the University of East Anglia. Aren't we all? Aren't we all? So, um, I'm super, I'm so, you know, this is a particularly, I, I don't want to get off the bat by making you feel uncomfortable by saying how excited I am to speak to you today. Um, but I am, so I'll, I'll try and maintain a sort of like a professional uh, veneer of indifference um, as you give your answers to my questions. But first off, I just wanted to... Well, to kick, actually, weirdly, the first thing I wanted to ask is, I've got this memory. Is it is it true that you used to do pottery? 
I still do. I've just had the brick shed in the garden converted into a pottery. How's it going? Um, it's very frustrating because there it sits. It's a pottery. It's waiting to go and I can't get near it for uh, university admin, basically. But yeah, for years and years and years, pottery has been the ideal antidote to writing. It's completely non-linguistic. It's all about the, the hand and the eye and the smell of the, the mud. Um, and I always wanted to be a potter. I, I, I left school wanting to be a potter. I went to art school. But the, um, the teacher of pottery at the art school was kind of militaristic. And he, he ran his pottery studio on industrial lines. And so I lost heart. And I left after three months. And I worked in an Arvon cosmetics factory pushing a, a metal trolley around. And my old English teacher rescued me. He plucked me out of the factory. He wrote me a letter and he sent me to UEA. And I think the letter says something like, please take pity on this poor boy. And they, they let me in with barely any qualifications. And I became a, an English literature graduate and then a creative writing graduate and a confirmed reader. And eventually I became a, a writer. But writing was always this thing I was doing because I was a frustrated potter and couldn't get um, into a pottery studio. For years and years, I've been going to pottery classes at night schools, uh, bringing clay home. Uh, never been able to fire the the, the pots because I haven't got a kiln. Uh, I haven't got a kiln because I haven't got a space to have a kiln. And now I've got a space. So I've got wow. a little pottery studio. And it's a kind of antidote to writing. It's been all day in your head with words going slowly mad. Uh, pottery is just this ideal way to stop the noise. Um, very what, meditative because i i because I, I i know almost i'm i'm about as confident talking about pottery as i am say um uh rugby union uh what kind of what kind of things this is going to sound like a really stupid question but what kind of things do you what kind of things do you make i mean is that a stupid question like i, I know i know what pottery is broadly as a craft <laughs> but i mean do you have to like to potters have speci specialities Yes, they do. There's, there are all kinds of ways in which you can uh, make ceramic art. Um, there's a spectrum and some of it is done purely commercially. And that means um, production throwing on a wheel and you just churn these things out. Everyone is identical weight and size and then you glaze them and they're identical and you sell them for uh, $5.99 in a craft shop or um, you make uh, masses and masses of them and sell them through uh, distribution centers to department stores. I don't know. I'm not interested in that. So there's craft pottery. There's a venerable tradition of craft pottery going going back hundreds, even thousands of years um, with different centers in, in Japan and China and Africa. Uh, and so I'm interested in craft pottery. I'm interested in um, slowly, very slowly hand building using coils of clay, hand building uh, pots which are about the size and shape of basketballs. They're, they're bigger than a football. Um, they're not completely spherical. That's part of the point. They're not spherical. Um, so I just slowly build them and it takes hours, it takes days, it takes weeks. Um, and it's very meditative and it's very um, satisfying. So. And it's still quicker than writing a novel. So this is the thing I want to say. So you, this was the, what you wanted to do, and but you got, um, you got sort of. <laughs> whereas so many people would like writing is the thing that they would always be sort of led towards, and then life gets in the way, and they get they get caught in the um, 
in the draft of uh, of the crushing uh, work ethic and, 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 and have to go and be sensible, um, you were actually drawn away from your dream into uh, the uh, in, into the backbreaking drudgery of creative writing. Can you talk a little bit? Why did that teacher pick you? You must have had an interest in in writing to for them yeah. to have, 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 have selected you and, and, and recommended you to UEA. Yeah, I, th- I think probably in the background, um, in the life story of, of every writer, there is a significant um, mentor, probably a teacher, not necessarily a teacher at school. Um, and I, I'm fortunate in that way. So I went to a fairly unpromising state comprehensive where it wasn't expected that the pupils would be particularly interested in reading, certainly not the boys. Uh, it was certainly not expected that you would progress to sick form and beyond sick form to university. So I think I was probably the, I certainly the first person in my family to go to university, but I think I may have been the first person from our school to go and study English literature at university. Uh, but I was quite fortunate in going to going to school in the 70s, uh, late 70s, um, which meant that my teacher had gone to school in the 60s and had come of age in the in the era of the the hippies. So I had an old hippie who was really into beat poetry and um, self-expression um, and the possibilities for self-invention, which I think are all legacies of the 60s. So he was, he was very keen to find in his classroom someone who seemed to have a, a natural facility for, for writing and for reading, who was sensitive. He found a sensitive boy. Um, I should say that he knew a lot about rugby union. He was a, <laughs> a rugby player and I was um, a footballer. So we weren't um, we weren't sort of little wilting wallflowers. Nice, um, like you were a renaissance who, man. Yeah, we were renaissance men. And, and he, he, um, he also uh, did uh, uh, motorcycle mechanics as a sideline. So, yeah, and I did my pottery. But, yeah, he, he found someone in me who was um, kind of receptive to, to words. And also, I think this is something you told me, who had a, um, a, a voice when I wrote essays. I had a kind of, uh, there was a cadence to uh, my sentences that was recognisable. And that's remained the case. I have this cadence. And for me, as a writer, that's become a real problem. It's a bit of a imprisoning thing that I always write to this particular cadence in my in my inner ear and everything I've written over the past um, several years has been an attempt to to find new rhythms different ways of writing a a sentence by me Um, but certainly at school I was writing um, I've read a few of them I I was writing really quite good essays about um, the set texts that we were given. So he was kind of regretful that um, he'd found someone in one of his English classes who was um, adept and had decided to go off and do um, pottery instead. So I think he, he was um, quite pleased when I dropped out of art school. Can you talk about the, um, the sort of lead up to uh, you writing your first uh, published novel, Pig? Mm. yeah you see it's it's really vexed um i i yeah i i wonder if i'd if i'd ever 
if I had actually committed to doing ceramics, I think I may have turned that into um, a neurosis in the way that I've managed to turn writing into a neurotic practice. And I think I might have grown to be quite a dissatisfied potter, a perfectionist potter who was never happy with anything he produced and was forever thinking I should have been a writer. Now I've been a writer instead and the whole time I've been a writer I've been a perfectionist and everything I've put on the page I've thought it's not good enough, um, I'm not a real writer, I've suffered quite badly as I think a lot of us do from imposter syndrome, I'm going to get found out at any moment. So I became a, a writer only gradually and reluctantly and it was very very stop start so I had an idea for a novel um, and I'd write a few pages of it and then I'd give up on it because I'd just decide that it was no good, it was never going to be good, it was futile and I was fooling myself. So it took me a very long time to write my first novel, about six years off and on. That included some quite lengthy periods of just not writing, the longest being nine months, so I just put it aside and I'm not going to write it. Um, and I began it two years after having completed the MA in creative writing at UEA. So I went to university on my um, school teacher's recommendation to do English literature. Whilst I was an undergraduate I didn't do any creative writing until third year when it was offered as the as a possibility that you could submit a piece of creative writing in, in place of a an essay and I was sick of writing academic essays so I submitted a short story. Did, along that time did you have any consciousness of like that you were building up to doing some creative writing? No I, I, I did it as as a as a release from uh, the pressure of feeling uh, that my academic work wasn't perfect so you know I've, I've constantly um, put myself in a, in a position where I feel that what I'm doing is inauthentic to me and I should be doing something else. So I, I was actually a very good um, literature student. I got good grades, but I felt like I really had to work too hard to achieve my good grades. It, it didn't come, it felt it didn't, like it didn't come naturally. So when I was offered by um, a young lecturer the opportunity to submit a piece of short fiction on the themes of a module, um, I jumped at that. That was my first short story I got quite a good grade for it. That was quite encouraging. When I left university with my uh, BA, I was determined I was never coming back to university. I'd had enough of literary theory in particular. Um, I was going to become a community artist. Um, and I spent a year trying to find work as a community artist um, and failed. I did voluntary work, but I never actually secured a, a job. Um, and in that year, I was um, sitting in on um, on classes with writers in residence. Uh, there was one at Corby Community Arts in my hometown. And I started to write little bits, which encouraged me to think that I might get into the MA in creative writing at UEA. And I applied. I was actually really truthfully applying so that I could go back to being a student. I was really, really nostalgic for being a student. I was very nostalgic for Norwich and for UEA. And so I applied to do the MA in creative writing simply to get me back there where I had been happy. Um, um, 
I mean, I say I was a, a, a miserable student in some ways, but I was happy generally uh, being a, living the student lifestyle. Um, so I got into the MA in Creative Writing at UEA at a time when it was incredibly easy to get in. Uh, <laughs> if you applied, you got in. And ours was the first year when they'd actually taken double figures. So there were 10 of us in the classroom. Uh, previously, it had been less than 10. Um, for 14 years, it had been less than 10 students. Um, and I was the first batch in double figures. And I really didn't know why I was there. I drifted in at one end. I wrote three short stories in the year. I drifted out at the other end. I was taught, sort of, by Malcolm Bradbury. Um, and I was taught sort of by Angela Carter. I had these... say, can you elaborate on what you mean by by sort of? Because yeah. you, you know, <laughs> you said because this is the thing is like if you go, I, I went and I studied for a year under Malcolm Bradbury and Angela Carter. There are, um, you know, there are people uh, listening. I don't suppose we've got the kind of listeners whose um, monocles will be dropping into their champagne, but certainly <laughs> they'll be spitting tea and, and going, wow, that sounds amazing right mm. so um what was it what was it like being taught taught um in invert in, in bunny quotes by them yeah i mean i didn't make it easy for them i i i really didn't know why why i was there i was drifting through um i was only there because i wanted to live the student lifestyle again um so i wasn't a good student um that said I don't think either of them were particularly committed teachers of, of creative writing. Because Bradbury had set up the creative writing MA with Ian McEwan as, as a normal student uh, in 1970. And then in 1980, he'd had Kazuya um in his class. Um, but when I joined in 1984, I think by that point, he was becoming perhaps a little bit tired of teaching creative writing. Um, and I was really quite surprised by the extent to which he didn't offer um, feedback on our work so it was quite formulaic the teaching in the workshop we would sit not in a circle but in a half circle um, with Malcolm um, in front of us so we were arranged in a crescent around him and one person would be having their work discussed and we would simply go along the line and each person in turn in the room would say what they thought about that piece of work. It very rarely became um, a lively conversation amongst us. It was a little bit um, by numbers. And Malcolm wouldn't join in the conversation uh, very much. And so we were always a, a little bit uncertain what he thought of our work. Um, when he handed it back to us, um, there would be barely any annotations on the page. Um, so we didn't get feedback in that way either. Um, when, in, in those days, it was um, not two semesters, it was three terms and each term was uh, 10 weeks. The first two terms were the workshop with Malcolm. The third term was individual tutorials with Angela. And that was so much better. Angela, you felt had a real interest in you as a person, as a student, as a writer, um, but not necessarily in your work. <laughs> so I used to love my sessions with her. It was great having a, a tutorial sitting in a room with her. Um, and she just used to gossip and digress. And she'd talk a little bit about writing and a little bit about this and a little bit about that. Um, 
And sometimes she would give you a book and say you might be interested in this without ever explaining why she thought you would be interested in this. Um, but she wasn't annotating my work either. Um, I think maybe she didn't find much in it worth annotating. Uh, and at that time, I was trying hard to be um, whichever writer was currently my favourite writer. I had no sense of who I was as a writer. So one week I'd try and be Ian McEwan, another week I'd try and be um, J.G. Ballard. And it was when, it was the week I was trying to be J.G. Ballard that she kind of sighed and said, why don't you just write about what you know, Andrew? And so I went away and I wrote a story about being me, someone like me, um, in a place very like where I'd come from in Corby, uh, just after a steelworks has been shut down and the entire town is redundant. And I called it Redundant, and it was the first piece of work I wrote that got published. Um, it's published in an anthology of New Scottish writing. Um, and that came from, you know, the, the unlikeliest person to give me that advice, write about what you know, coming from a fabulist like Angela Carter, who deliberately wrote about what she didn't I was going to say, the cheek. Um, <laughs> yeah, and she also gave me um, a copy of uh, what we talk about when we talk about love. Um, so Raymond Carver's, um, I think, second collection of short fiction, short stories, uh, which hadn't long been published, and she had no use for it. I mean, she was, you know, as a, as a kind of prominent writer, she was the recipient of lots of free books. And that one in particular, uh, she disdained. Uh, she'd had a glance and she gave it to me. Um, she clearly saw that it'd be of more use to me than to her. And it certainly was, you know, so I gave up trying to be McEwen or Ballard or see Grace Paley was another one I was trying to be. And for a while, um, I was trying to be either me or Raymond Carver. Oh. Um, and eventually I won out. Um, but that took two years after the MA. So I left the MA to go right back to your first question. I think it was your first question um, about the writing of Pig. Uh, I left the MA feeling like I certainly wasn't a writer, that the MA had proved to me I wasn't a writer, that I was there under false pretenses. And for the next two years, I barely wrote a thing. In fact, I wrote nothing. Um, but I did have this idea, the germ of an idea for Pig, um, which came out of um, three quite particular uh, losses. Um, and I think a lot of writing derives from a sense of absence or loss. Um, and there was the spur to writing a novel. I had this idea. And so I began to write uh, pig two years after getting my MA and like I say it was stop stark so I kept running out of self-belief what were those three losses um so my grandfather died he was the person that I was I think closest to in my life um, a relationship with a girl had ended a, a couple of years earlier when I was an undergraduate but I was still feeling the aftershocks of that and the town where I came from, Corby, which was a new time, new town built around the steelworks. There wouldn't be a Corby if there wasn't a steelworks. Everyone who lived in Corby had some kind of connection to the steelworks. And uh, the steelworks closed um, and Corby became a ghost town. So I felt like I'd lost um, two significant others and the place that kind of explained me. And so the novel was an attempt to... Uh, in a way, retrieve 
what had been lost. Um, so I wrote a novel set in a place like Corby, in which a young boy who was kind of like me um, has a relationship with a young Indian girl who was kind of like the girl that I'd uh, been going out with at university. And um, they move into a cottage on the edge of the steelworks, on the edge of the new town where the grandfather used to live before he was taken into a home. And so the grandfather appears in the, in the novel as um, an old man in an old folks home, whilst um, these two young people uh, sort of move into his home and look after his pig. The pig is in the allotment in the garden. Well, um, I've, I've written. Oh wow! I want to ask about the. I want to ask about the the pig. I'm sorry to. Mm. I feel bad sort of sweeping aside the kind of grand spectrum of human grief and uh, lost love and going uh, straight for the pig. But um, how? Because that seems that seems like such an interesting and odd additional thing to kind of like pop in there. I can understand how you got to all the other things. How did you get the idea that this story was going to, at the centre of it, have have a pig? And did you do any research to like mm. to, to be able to... I, I, I know we all kind of know what a, a pig is, but I know especially because you like to write with this kind of crunchy specificity and really get the kind of suchness of a thing. I'm sure you wouldn't have sort of satisfied with your, yourself about mm. just just giving us any generic pig. Yeah, the pig was a dog. Um, I hadn't met a pig. Um, yeah, the the germ of the novel. Um, it's those three th those three things, but it's also an anecdote which was told to me by a friend whose family uh, were from London, and they lived on a housing estate in London. They were Jewish, and um, they wanted uh, the grandfather of their family to uh, get the tenancy of a nearby, a neighboring flat. And the tenancy of that flat went to an Asian family. And this Jewish family um, got up a, a petition on the estate to stop the Asians moving in. And uh, when the petition didn't work, um, they got a pig's head and they nailed the pig's head to oh the gosh. front door of the, the flat where the Asian family were moving in. And there are ironies to that anecdote. Yeah. And that's what um, spurred the idea of a novel. I thought I could maybe address the all too familiar racism of the people on the estates where I'd grown up. Um, and so that, that meant that the book had to have a pig's head in it at some point. Um, and I don't know how I arrived at the idea of having an allotment in which there was a real live pig being fattened up through the year to be slaughtered at New Year. Um, but that there was the germ of the novel. Um, and I had to do some research into the keeping of pigs because I had never met one. I'd never been near a pig. But as a boy, I had um, had dogs large dogs and so in my imagination I just drew on what I knew about dogs and so the pig in the novel is basically a little bit of book research plus my um, understanding of the way large animals uh, behave um, I did 
wonder at a certain point about some of the legal aspects of what I was describing in the book. You know, for instance, um, what do you feed a pig on? Well, swill. Um, but are there rules about the boiling of swill to feed to domestic livestock? At the time, I was living in Glasgow, so my partner and I, Lynn and I, we'd moved from Norwich to Glasgow, and we were living in a, a second-floor tenement in a very rough area of Glasgow called Govan, which was uh, just on the edge of uh, Glasgow near Renfrewshire. And I wrote to the Strathclyde Veterinary Service asking about the rules concerning the uh, feeding of swill to pigs. And I didn't get a reply. Instead, we got dawn raided. So um, <laughs> the the police and the veterinary service <laughs> came to visit us at four in the morning. <laughs> why else would you be asking? Yeah. And it's because there had been a lot of pig rustling in Renfrewshire um, in, the, in the farmland surrounding uh, Glasgow. Pigs had gone missing. Oh, man. And they I thought... imagine when they opened that letter, they were like... <laughs> Sarge, Sarge, <laughs> we've got him. <laughs> uh, um, and it, it, so it was clearly the unlikeliest alibi. <laughs> I'm writing, I'm writing a, I'm writing a novel, officer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's that's commitment. That's great. And but I guess and having a sense of um, having a very clear kind of like, uh, you know, relationship with. Uh, like dogs that you'd had in your past and stuff like that that kind of gave you permission to confabulate right like you mm -hmm. felt like you kind of like you were it felt confident enough that you could just go well I'll, if, if i basically bullshit like kind of like confidently mm. enough then it's gonna yeah i think when i'm writing it's all about the sentences anyway so i had uh through my my book research i had a number of sentences which i wanted to to slot in and S sentences from books on pigs keeping pigs or well sentences that i sort of fabricated from my notes on pigs um fascinating fact about male pigs is that their tackle um is corkscrew shaped um <laughs> And also, the, I'm just taking a few moments to process that. Yeah, from conception to birth, uh, to the birth of a litter is precisely three months, three weeks, and three days. Possibly it's even three hours and three minutes. Hmm. But those little facts, I, I wanted to work in somehow. Um, I felt it was sufficient if um, the few occasions when I had to describe the pig, um, I described the pig convincingly enough. I didn't really have to know all that much, um, and a lot of a lot of writings like that. So my books tend to be quite um, slim volumes; they, they're quite short, and it's not like I've edited out loads of stuff. That's all there is. That's all I know. All I know is there on the page, um, and it's, it's because I tend to believe that um, indicative detail, um, very granular detail. Uh, I think you said crunchy. I like that. Crunchy specificity. Crunchy specificity. It's a, it's a term I've been using for ages that I had in my head. I'd, I'd, I'd got from you and now I I don't think I did, in which case it's just something that came from the ether and has no beginning 
or end, and I'm simply just the. Uh, oh, I wish it was me. The uh, I'm I'm just the I'm, I think I'm just the custodian of it, but crunchy specificity, indicative detail. You said that's it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I believe in the the um, uh, efficacy of the indicative detail, the, the crunchy specific. Uh, yeah. So I I, I have a um, a habit of. Um, suggestion i think so i suggest more than i actually know um and often what i'm doing with students actually is is asking them to to put in more white space you know take out some words um that's probably my most common uh, criticism of student work is too many words take some out and if you leave a bit of space a bit of white space around your words you invite the reader to come in and inhabit that space so you give the reader a hint about the weather and then the reader supplies what they know about that kind of weather and so the 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 book the the fiction becomes a kind of partnership between the writer and the reader and that's a way in which the reader gets into a book we say of books i couldn't get into it and i think the more white space there is the more possibility there is that your reader's gonna get into it so just don't overload your reader with description. In my case, um, I have no choice because I have so few words. Um, so, so, but so you're saying you don't? That's not. You, that's not something that you. That's not a dictum that you follow yourself. You don't think. Um, I think I've made a dictum out of necessity. <laughs> so is it kind of like the advice that you? That you that you're trying to are you is this the the lesson that you've been kind of like vainly trying to teach? I mean, because that's not my that's actually not my impression of of your work at all. Because I, I I think that there's different types of white space. Because you're not talking about literal. Just to be you know for people listening, just to be clear, I I, I mean you're not talking about like literal sort of B.S. Johnson house mother normal style like literal pages with nothing on them or just one word. No. Um, so then there's a kind of a kind of like one way of inflecting that is like that clipped journalistic prose where you pick one a very specific noun and then the rest of the sentences you know you have the he said she said instead of very detailed dialogue beats i suppose what i see in a lot of your stuff is often leaving a kind of semantic or thematic or motivational gaps where we're invited to deduce what the character is thinking or invited to see an irony and that's not like a stylistic um gap white space but it is a emotive or now again i've done that thing that i warned you i was going to do of like putting words into your mouth and being the guy at a literary reading um mm. advancing a pet uh theory about the work just uh, displayed on the fly but does that ring true at all yeah no i'm glad you i'm glad you've um done that because um i think i'm struggling to um describe what i mean um i often also counsel students to withhold as much as they reveal um i think it's a it's a case of being precise about the detail being very precise and not just pouring detail onto the page in the hope that the more detail you provide, the richer the image in the reader's mind's eye. I think there's a paradoxical effect that the more you tell the reader, the less able they are to form a picture in their head because the, their mind's eye just becomes so cluttered with, with 
detail. Um, so in the descriptive passages, I do tend towards um, extreme specificity, but also economy. Mm. Um, in the dialogue two, that's uh, making a virtue of necessity. That is, that's um, making a virtue out of one of what I think of as my weaknesses, that I'm not terribly good at voices, at, at voicing different characters. So the longer they go on, the more... Um, staged or scripted they sound so if i can clip them a bit they they have more chance of sounding authentic but also i think unlike this situation in real life we do tend to talk in um non sequiturs in fragments we talk across purposes um, a lot of what we convey and understand is by implication and body language and facial expression and all of that contextual understandings provide a lot of what's missing from the actual spoken utterance and I try to create something of that on the page um, but also yeah with the themes and so on um, like for instance with pig which is fundamentally about class and race or my second book common ground which was basically about um, campaigns against the destruction of the natural world um, the anti-road building movement of the 90s um, there's a there's a there's a there's a, a cause being celebrated in that book and by implication in pig there's a cause being celebrated a kind of cause of anti-racism let's say if you're tackling political themes there's this terrible danger of sounding preachy being a bit tub thumpy being a bit obvious and heavy-handed and so i think i i went to the other extreme um and um withheld a lot of the um the more preachy impulse behind i i disguised the preachy impulse behind those two books and so that does give the the voice um um a reticent feel yeah, I, I I was kind of struck maybe 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 it's it's um it's the result of that process but I also was struck in the books of yours that I've read that um you often have quite like l laconic characters who aren't you, you don't tend to write big kind of like monologuing now listen here my boy and I'll tell you a thing or two about the world like uh th th those those I mean those are the characters that I'm that I write a lot of and I would say that they're my main weakness as well that I like writing kind of like stagey um, monologuists who um, come out with with very on the nose expressions of their uh, uh, opinions while kind of like swaggering around in a half cape and uh, swagger stick um, and, 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 and it's quite you know it's a little bit scooby-doo at times uh, but it, it seems to me that like a lot of your a lot of the characters in your books are also people who are not um, terribly given or experienced at explaining to other people their inner lives. Yeah, um, that's certainly the case with. Um, oh no, that's a gross generalization. And there's you know. No, I think it's actually true. I'm I'm going through them in my head, but I think it's true of every book I've written actually that they are laconic, um, and that in a way I'm trying to um, give voice to inarticulacy, um, 
give voice to people who maybe struggle to express themselves. Um, I'm very interested, I think, as a writer in emotional nuance um, and implication and what people don't reveal as much as they do reveal. And trying to draw that out um, is, I think, the unspoken challenge I set myself every time I write something. I'm trying to get at the nub of some kind of um, emotional um, withdrawal. So my third book, I mean, in my third book, there's, it's called Crustaceans. There's a father who's lost his son. Um, the son's died, six years old. And he's trying to keep the boy alive, um, as it were, through narrating the boy's story to him by talking to the boy. He doesn't stop talking to the boy. Um, and that means he also narrates his own story and he goes back to his own childhood and so on. Um, but there's, there's a, a protagonist on the page who <clears throat> has been silenced by grief. Um, and how do you sustain a novel if you've got someone who has been silenced, um, who doesn't want to speak, um, or who only wants to speak privately to someone who isn't there? Um, and so that that's a particular challenge in making, um, in expressing the inexpressible or making the laconic um, audible. Can you remember when that um, that voice began to appear on the page for you when it started to speak to you when it, you started to develop that voice for crustaceans? Um, it was there from the start. It was there from the start. The very I can't remember the very first line. I, th I think it's December and one foot of snow. I think that was the first line, uh, and the father's sort of driving a car with the with the son in his imagination sitting on the back seat and they're driving for a snowy landscape out to the seaside he's actually taking him back to uh, the seashore where he died um, and he starts to talk to him and it is um, a very intimate um, and quite laconic voice I wouldn't say it's clipped because it is written to uh, that cadence um, it's written to a particular rhythm I think um, it was for a while the book that I found easiest to read because it sounded so much like my interior voice, my interior cadence. I found it easy to read for a time. Now I find it impossible. Um, but the voice was there from the beginning. The trouble is um, I was conscious all the time of writing a book that nobody would want to read. Who wants to read about that subject? Um, why did I want to write about it? I think it's because I've become a father. And I become um, subject to emotions I didn't realize I was capable of um, experiencing um, and fears I didn't I wasn't previously aware of. So this happens, I think, to every new parent. They suddenly find that their capacity for love is, is infinite and also for grief um, and for worry, anxiety. And so in a way that writing that book was kind of confronting worse fears and touching wood. Um, by writing the book, maybe it wouldn't happen. My worst fears wouldn't come true. So I embarked upon a ridiculous uh, project, uh, which was to write a book about the death of a child in a way which would be appealing to a reader. Now, how do you make it appealing? And I got into my, ha my head that it therefore had to be jeweled. 
it had to be perfect um, every sentence had to be absolutely perfect um, and that uh, drove me into the ground it took me down a cul-de-sac I couldn't put a word on the page eventually I couldn't put a word on the page for fear that it'd be the wrong word so I got perfectionism like a disease with that book um, you, and a, you said that you illness. were a perfectionist before then but was that when it sort of it kind of reached it when when all the practice you'd put in the years of hard work into the various aspects of perfectionism uh, really came together yeah it caught up with me um i think there it did actually become a mental illness um it it, it led to writer's block writer's block became absolutely indistinguishable from depression I couldn't speak. I became catatonic. I couldn't write. I couldn't speak. Um, what saved me uh, was Dorothea Brand's book, uh, Becoming a Writer, where she um, advocates the practice of automatic writing. And so what eventually got me out of this hole I'd, I'd dug for myself, I was, two, I was two years into the writing of the book and only halfway through, and it's a thin book, um, and I was stuck. And so I just wrote down a heading for each of the characters, a heading for each of the locations, each of the themes, each of the events I knew must happen. Just wrote headings, sing, single word or single sentence at the top of a page. And then on successive days for a month, I just sat down and I gave my per myself permission to handwrite any old garbage. And I just wrote, I set myself an hour at a stretch I had to keep going for an hour, precisely an hour. Uh, couldn't stop before the hour. I wasn't to continue beyond the hour. I was to forgive myself every mistake. I wouldn't cross out or correct or worry about punctuation or spelling or grammar. If I ran out of something to say, I'd just write and write the same thing until I thought of a new thing, um, just so long as the ink kept flowing. And after a month, I had 30,000 words sufficient to finish the book. Um, it needed a lot of work then, but what I produced is a kind of um, raw sewage in which there were shiny bits, there were jewels in there, there were good things. And I could take out those sentences, those passages, and start to build the novel on them. And that's become my practice since. It's, it's my way of dealing with my own perfectionism, is to give myself permission and, and provide myself with a space where I can be imperfect. And so everything I write now begins with um, just uh, spooling onto the page, whatever's there. And I tend to do it, if I can, very early in the morning. And this is Dorothea Brand's um, sub-Freudian idea that if you do the automatic writing just after you wake up, you're very close to the unconscious then, the promptings of the, the dream state. Um, and there's some truth in it. So your head at least is not cluttered with all the crap of the day. Can I just ask, why on earth didn't you stop? Like, I'm very glad you didn't. And I see like, but you talk about it making you, and it's what you're saying is it's been, been so many writers I've spoken to have talked to me about in very, you know, in very, in strikingly similar terms. And I've been through the same thing as well. You know, I had Joe Dunthorne, on uh, a couple of months ago and he talked about writing the adulterants and and saying it you know and saying that yeah he felt he had depression he couldn't write and he hated it he hated 
writing and he kept going and you know you found a way through but i guess people who haven't written and maybe some people who do um why why at the point when it's not fun when it's not coming out when it's making you feel miserable what what is it that makes you go i'm going to continue with this activity and solve it mm. um because for all your perfectionism, it seems to me that you have an incredible capacity for um, persisting with things that aren't easy, for mm. um, reinventing yourself from trying new routes, um, and for um, keeping going in the face of just getting bad output back. And I, I want to know what what's going on there, do you think? Um, I do think in my case it's a it's a sort of obsessive compulsive disorder um, and I'm not being facetious um, it is a compulsion and I can't just stop I've got so far and it just haunts me and taunts me you know here I am um, I'm not perfect you started me you haven't finished me I'm a bit of a mess and I need fixing and you can't just walk away from me. And no, I can't. I just hear that thing uh, nagging away saying, come back and have another go. Um, and I think I'm like that with most things. So there's that. In that particular instance, I had signed a two book deal with a publisher. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that book was the first of the two. And actually, um, I began the, the second of the two, which was my fourth novel. I began my fourth novel two years after it was supposed to have been delivered so crustaceans the third novel had just taken so long um that i i, I landed us in a lynn me and, and rose in a certain amount of financial difficulty because i'd taken so long i had no other source of income either that was in a period of my life pig was very successful and common ground reasonably successful in terms of prizes and, and foreign uh, sales and, and book uh, film options and things like that so there was a period in my writing career when it's possible to live off writing only just but we did live off writing and Lynn was also publishing and, and everything looked okay looked very uh, promising it was a bit of a struggle financially and it was very unpredictable financially there'd be peaks and troughs but it looked okay for the future um but ultimately that becomes unsustainable when you're not producing the work um the advance gets spent uh there's no royalties coming in because it's so long since you last um wrote a book published a book your brand name if you have one um its shelf life expires you know there are new writers coming along and suddenly no one can remember um who you are and there's, I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's not, I know, like, in your, in your worst moments, there's kind of, like, you imagine kind of whispers in smoky London clubs, they're saying, someone <laughs> puts down, like, a copy of the Times Literary su Supplement that says, well, it says here, Cowan's lost his spark. When, of course, I think that's something that's quite popular amongst us in our most neurotic moments, and occasionally, sort of, publishers will subscribe to this idea that if you're not putting out like at least a book a year, then um, everyone kind of goldfishes 
on you. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how true that is in actuality, but certainly when you're there and the words aren't coming, it feels like the most real thing in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and also I got to a point in my life where, see, the um, crustaceans came out, I think, in 2000. So I was almost 40. Um, and I had no CD to speak of because I'd just done odd jobs. I'd, I'd drifted from one thing to another. There was always sort of writing as a sideline and then the main focus of my um, daily grind. Um, but I had nothing to fall back on. So that is a genuine reason why I couldn't just give up on that book because I'm a slow writer anyway. To start a new one would just have delayed the next publication even even more um so it, it was it was a real salvation actually to get a job at uea eventually not as a as a lecturer i wasn't on the faculty i was a royal literary fund fellow and i just had to come in um two days a week um and give tutorials to individual students but that was the first financial stability i'd had in my writing life but it was a godsend in another way in that it got me out of the house. It got me out of my head. And so two days a week, I'd actually be engaging with other humans. I'd be talking to people and I'd be doing good. I'd be doing something useful for others. And so I had a sense of, uh, it was a, I, I felt rewarded. Um, and that helped me as a writer. So when I sat down to write, it wasn't like this is all there is. I wasn't quite as jaded and bored and fed up. Um, I was kind of glad to get back to my desk. So having a, a sideline, another job, uh, was a real boon. That was a real help. Can I, I want to just jump ahead to talk about, uh, is it all right if we talk about worthless men? Um, mm. Because it just struck me that that is an example of, we talked about sort of, characters um not that aren't not inarticulate exactly but characters who um aren't always forthcoming with their personal stories and um worthless men the the way you kind of strikes me that the way you put that together was was all about you know in 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 some ways a lot of the raw material you used for that was um people opening up to you talking about their lives the texture and the kind of like thrust of, of them I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about how about that how that book came together and how you wrote it because I, I I I read I, I read it when it came out and um I think it was one of my favorite books of the year it was absolutely I was just I, I'll shut up now but like yeah I, was, I, I don't want to preempt it in a way that forces you into I'm um, being incredibly self-deprecating to uh, correct the balance but um yeah if you could talk a bit about how it came about hmm. I just just one thing about that I I published my fourth book, What I Know, in 2004. I then got a regular job at UEA, full-time on the faculty. Didn't write much for the next several years. Worthless Men didn't come out till 2013. So that's um, quite a big gap. And it's nine years. That's nine years between mm. novels. And I think my um, shelf life had expired. It was very difficult to get any uh, publicity for that book reviews, um, festival appearances and so on. I did feel like I'd, I'd, I'd gone away for a long time and come back and nobody knew, recognised me, nobody knew who I was. 
Um, but that book actually went back years and years and years. So I said that when I left uh, university as an undergraduate, I wanted to be a community artist. That's because I'd done voluntary work for Corby Community Arts. Um, and I had an interest in community arts, which persisted beyond my MA. And when I finished my MA in creative writing, slightly by accident and slightly by prior leaning, uh, by inclination, I got involved in setting up an oral history project in Norwich. I was through a chance encounter with a very interesting old fella. And I used to go and visit him in his home. And I used to record his, his stories about the way Norwich had been when he was a, a child and a young man. And I started applying for grants locally to set this up as an archive of recordings of local people's memories. And uh, the idea was that we could uh, take these memories, uh, record them, and then turn the recordings into materials which could be used in reminiscence therapy for old people. Oh, really? Were, for, so for them to listen to, to help them? To remember people who were, you know, drifting towards um, uh, dementia, loss of memory, perhaps through the listening to um, tapes about their own well, they're uh, not bringing them out recognised, so yeah, it, it would wow. stimulate their, their memories. Uh, so that was the plan. And I, I dedicated two years to interviewing elderly people around Norwich, um, sometimes on particular themes like the boot and shoe industry, the Great Flood of 1912, the particular history of King Street in Norwich, but often just simply their life story. One of the people I interviewed was Agnes Davy, who had been... Uh, the cook to the Coleman family hmm. and she had loads of in and she'd grown up on King Street in a very large family so she had loads of memories about King Street about the brewing industry about the the Mrs Coleman who were quite peculiar um and we together we took her um recordings i edit i transcribed them i edited them and we put them together as her autobiography and we published it with the local press um that was one outcome of all that work what can i ask what were peculiar about the colmans uh well the mrs coleman uh the the, the two daughters of the coleman family they were both spinsters and they lived together and they had a lot of um just eccentric habits um uh, and, you know, they, they lived quite a privileged but quite isolated life um, at, um, on Brackendale, actually, the mm. end of King Street. Um, so I, I gathered all these um, tapes and transcripts and um, I was doing this eventually um, part time on a government job creation scheme. And the job, the, the creation, it was what was it called? The community program. It required there to be a sponsoring organization. My sponsoring organisation couldn't be more inappropriate. It was uh, a, a skills workshop for the unemployed where they could come along and do carpentry and metalwork and so on on Music House Lane just off King Street. Um, so when the community programme was abolished and Lynn and I decided we were going to move to Glasgow, I left all the tapes and transcripts with the sponsoring organisation, um, hoping that they would look after them and I left uh, copies with uh, Norwich Library and we spent seven years in Glasgow and when we come back after seven years I, I wondered what had happened to um, 
the the originals and i i found out that they'd been stored in a derelict outbuilding oh gosh uh and had gone into a skip so they were lost um but at least there were copies in the local library and then two weeks after we um, moved back to norwich uh, the local library burnt down and so oh, i think <laughs> i think a lot of the material not all of it was lost there as it happened because i'd become quite close to a lot of these old people it was a bit like they were surrogate grandparents uh, replacing my grandfather um the, the kind of grand the granddad shaped hole in my life i used to go and talk to them in the way i used to go and talk to him um i kept transcripts of some of them um maybe uh, a fifth of the total archive i didn't keep any of the tapes i haven't got their voices but what i did have was um, all the material and for years i thought there might be a novel in it and two things stopped me one is that although there was material there wasn't a story certainly not a story which was mine and the other question was an ethical one those people had given their um, memories to me on the understanding that they'd be stored in the local library for anyone to visit and, and listen to or read and would be used uh, in reminiscence therapy they hadn't given me all that material so i could turn it into a novel and that stalled me for years and years and years and then, um, until until, <laughs> until inspiration ran dry <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah um, and then there came, there came a point where um it's purely by accident i was watching um a open university program on the television about uh the father of uh the modern science of statistics um his name was fisher i can't remember his first name um and it was it was very interesting about him as a man um that he was a eugenicist um around about the time of the first world war and it emerged that he wasn't alone in looking upon the first world war as a positive thing that it might affect a necessary cull of the substandard it might cleanse the race uh, in many ways he was a good man I read his biography, which was written by his daughter, and he comes across as an irascible man, very eccentric man, brilliant man, but also uh, an enthusiast for all kinds of things, in many ways a good man. One of the things he was enthusiastic about, however, was eugenics. Um, and there were others. And, um, I became fascinated with that. Now, most of the stuff that um, I recorded uh, on the Oral History Archive was about that period between about 1912 and about 1932 that period um, and I thought I could write a book about um, eugenics and the First World War which would draw upon all that material um, all the specific detail that was in those those uh, transcripts and that allowed me I think a way of um, accommodating myself with my conscience I wouldn't be stealing any stories, but I would be using the archive for the texture, the detail of lives at that time. It, do, it does feel to me like you really, you're not presenting us with a kind of quaint, I know uh, Agatha Christie is kind of too too late for that period, but it's, it's, not, a, it's not kind of a sanitised version of the world. We're right down there in it. And I, I kind of think that... Uh, from my perspective it kind of shows a real it does it does them a real the time a real respect because 
you're writing in a way that I think would be recognisable to people who were there. And of course, you don't actually have any any responsibility to do that because most readers wouldn't know the difference. And so to go to that, to those lengths, is actually something you don't have have to do. You could get away with it. And so actually having that level of texture and detail, aside from being um, inducing an almost trance-like state in the reader I don't, that makes it sound like it's boring i mean like <laughs> kind of for that hallucinatory quality of close packed um detail and that ability to 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 weave a texture that doesn't have doesn't have big gaps where you go well i don't know what happens here so i well, i just i always think that so for me like the thing that's really good about like worthless men versus something and it's an unfair comparison but um uh say uh oh What's it called? It's the Night Circus, which is a completely different, you know, uh, norm, but set in the same period about a, a, you know, a magical circus that travels all across Europe and uh, warring magicians and stuff. But there was, there's a bit in that where a character goes to the circus when it appears in France and it says he walked up to the sign and paid the required number of francs. And I was like, why don't you tell us how many francs it was? Well, because that tells us all sorts of things about what kind of person can afford to go to this circus. Well, the reason is because you don't know. You haven't even checked how much a lot or a small amount of francs is in that time because you don't know and there's no texture to the period and i think there's lots of reasons people like that novel and that's not, i'm not well i am attacking it on that front but i feel like we actually get to know not just the shape of but the weight of things mm -hmm. in the narrative that that you've created when we follow these i think it's five characters is that right yeah and uh, a lot of supplementary research went into it once i'd uh, set myself to write that book um, that's partly why it took so long between one book and the next book it wasn't just that I was so busy at UEA um, I was doing so much supplementary research I have a colleague at UEA Trezor Azapadi uh, we were talking about researching for novels and she'll do it as diligently uh, and in as much detail as I do uh, the difference is that she'll reach a point where she'll decide she's done enough now and she'll put all the research notes in a cupboard and then she'll trust that what's relevant will come out on the page. Um, and I don't do that. So I'm constantly referring to my notes as I'm writing. Um, and that maybe gives that sense of, of the detail. And if, if I don't know how much something costs, um, that'll be two or three days writing time lost because I'll be pursuing that question. Um, yeah, but like to me, it's just I'm just thinking of stuff like in the book, you give us like quite a detailed kind of tour around a, uh, uh, a like a pharmacy, for example. Yeah. And we get to see kind of a bit like J.D. Salinger's kind of like we, when we look inside the Glass family medicine cabinet and he and the narrator Buddy Glass gives us every single every single thing from top to bottom that's in the mm. uh, medicine cabinet. Now, actually, that tells us a huge amount about the glasses. It tells us so many things. And actually, in the same way that the, uh, you know, uh, when uh, in the Metamorphosis, Kafka goes into great detail about a, a picture of a woman with a kind of like fur muff on the wall, um, 
when we if we buy into the existence of that picture then we accept that Gregor Samsa has been transmogrified into a giant mm. beetle because if that exists mm. if that picture exists it's very difficult for the brain having accepted yes. that as a real physical object and for yeah. me I, I don't want to you know I don't want to give away too much about how the book pans out but for me our emotional investment and actually some of the and some of the slightly more um uh, uh, uh less rational aspects of the book are given so much credence that you actually don't really process them as being irrational or strange or in any way because i believe in those in that jar on the shelf that is used for uh br- for it's some kind of a, a, a use it used for abortions that smells of penny royal or something like that there's that there's that level of i don't want to say kind of like pointillist detail the, the indicative details that i think if you let one of those into your into your heart the rest of the world comes pouring through that hole mm. i think um you've just articulated um my method I, I i'm so i'm sorry I'm, i know i'm doing no, that thing that's, but that's, like that's what i'm up to i don't quite been able to articulate it but yes if i can convince you with the details you'll believe the rest um the uh, one thing that came out of many of the interviews i did with people who'd grown up on king street was that king street which has been thoroughly gentrified now um the main thoroughfare the oldest thoroughfare in norwich um was an absolute warren of industry and poverty um there were lots of little workshops there were lots of enormous families and women were condemned to one pregnancy after another. It was a miserable existence for most of them. And many of the daughters of those women in interviews with me would recall the kindly pharmacist at the end of King Street who would um, do favours for their mother. And he, w- he he performed abortions or he gave them... Um, uh, nostrum not that's not the word anyway he gave them potions which would induce uh, an abortion and the statistic the statistician i mentioned ronald aylmer um, fisher um, i thought i would take his character the eugenicist and turn him into the pharmacist on this street and not have him a kindly pharmacist actually have him there as someone who pretty much despises his clientele and the people in the neighborhood and he's there offering abortions and uh, contraceptives um actually i think they were called contraconception devices he was offering them because he wanted to reduce their numbers or control their numbers uh, so he's a central one of the five central figures and to make him believable i had to know what was in the glass cases in his pharmacy because of course it's through his perspective and um, yeah, when other characters pass by or go into that uh, pharmacy, pharmacy, we don't we don't always get the same. Uh, we are, it's it's when we're kind of more closely following him that we get that level of detail because it's it's reflecting the knowledge when we're kind of moving close to that character. Mm. Um, I want, I guess, the thing I wanted to sort of move on to sort of to round things off would be to ask because you've written um the art of writing fiction which i have uh here 
in front of me um and it's your it's sort of like a book where you've put a lot of your thoughts and uh, knowledge on creative writing uh, into one volume i i just wanted to ask a little bit you've already talked about like the mo one of the most common problems that you're you find with students um is that they put in too much detail and i think that again that's kind of a neurotic thing isn't it it's that fear that people won't see that you're a proper writer unless you sort of step in that they'll think you've left stuff out by mistake it's quite a terrifying thing to want to step in and, and control their vision of what you're seeing um i just wondered if there were if, if you could share a few things you've learned from teaching creative writing over these because i should say my first creative writing lessons were with you when i was 18 and mm. went to Arvin, which I guess would have been around the time because I remember you I think you read from Crustaceans so either you were working on it or it had just come out but it would have been around that time um and I was 18 at the time uh and that and, and actually a, few, a, a couple of months ago I went back and taught at Totley Barton in Arvin and sat in that same barn teaching yeah. a group of 18 year olds uh and and it felt like a really special moment mm. to me because I felt like I wouldn't be there if it hadn't been for you and Richard Beard teaching me for that week in Arvon. Arvon, for people who haven't been, it's a it's sort of like a five week intense, a five day intensive sort of writing retreat where you go and you're taught by two tutors and there's a guest reader who comes on the Wednesday night, which was Lynn when we uh, did it, and it was you and Richard Beard. Um, but it was it felt it felt really. It felt really emotional to me to be back there and to teaching, teaching can, eight, it, 18 year olds. It can be a really magical experience. Yeah. Um, very special. I mean, you are isolated from the world in, there are three centers. Each of them is in quite a remote place. It's, you still can't get, you still can't get mobile reception inside the houses. Mm. It's even now it's great. And they're beautiful old houses and everyone eats together and cooks together and um talks writing together and and you do exercises and you do readings and you write stuff and you just live and breathe it for a week miles from anywhere it can be really magical so can you could you what are there some like key things that you've that you feel uh that people tend to need to know is oh, if, actually you know what the first thing i want to ask is hmm. why do you think that because the, it's the question still gets asked can creative writing be taught i would assume mm. that you've at least got on a position on why do you think that is such a why do you think that is um people people are so interested in asking that question still because we don't ask can maths be taught i've never heard that but it seems to be sort of a repeated refrain and i was wondering whether yeah. you get a sense why that i don't know I mean, we don't ask it of the other art forms either you know the we don't ask it of of painting or pottery or dance or music. Uh, these art forms, these practices, artistic practices can all be taught. Um, but we assume that whoever is in the dance studio is by nature equipped to be a dancer. We assume that whoever's um, in the um, art studio has a certain facility for drawing or painting or um, working with color or working with a material like clay 
that most people just don't have. There seems to be something innate about those abilities um, and, and exclusive. You know, it's only a, a percentage of people who have those abilities, we tend to believe. Um, with writing, the, the material is language and everybody um, has language. Everybody can use language, manipulate it. Everybody has a story to tell. Everybody can tell stories. The way in which we understand ourselves and our, our lives is, is often in the form of stories. Um, and yet not all of us um, are published writers. That seems to be um, a special skill. So there's a, there's a kind of contradiction. On the one hand, we can all do it. On the other hand, you can't teach it because it has to be an innate ability. Um, so I think what, what the teaching of creative writing can do is take that um, facility for storytelling um, that's in everybody and work with it by teaching techniques um, and disciplines. And then at a certain point, when there's a level of competence been achieved, putting those would-be writers in a room together and have them exchange work and comment on each other's work and accelerate each other's development. So it's certainly possible to um, teach certain things. Can you teach um, a novelistic sensibility? Can you teach the spark which makes um, a book come alive? That's the thing possibly we all admit we can't teach. Where does that come from? I don't know. I think I feel like in in the room of creative writing teachers, um, I would be the Henry Higgins style braggart who would take the gentleman's bet and say, I'll take the next person who comes along and turn her into a novelist. If, uh, um, but may I mean, maybe it's very difficult to it's very difficult to A-B test that, isn't it? And and talk about because if someone te learns creative writing and then produces a great book, then we retroactively say, well, they must have had in in them. You go, well, of course, that, that facility must have been always there and we, they just need to find a way to let it out. So it's, it's very difficult because anyone who produces a piece of writing will be grandfathered into the creative writing aristocracy of people who always had the bloodline. When uh, Malcolm Bradbury retired from teaching um, in 95, um, that was commemorated with a, an anthology of, of work by 25 years worth of students. Um, and in the introduction, he writes that even after 20 years, 25 years, he's not convinced that writing can be taught. However, he does think that the development of a writer can be accelerated through a course. And if you ask a lot of writers who come off programs like ours what they got out of it, many of them will say it's a sense of affirmation. So I think it, it A, accelerates the development of writers, but it also secures some people for writing who may otherwise have given up. And being on a course allows them to take themselves seriously 
as writers in the company of other people who are taking themselves seriously as writers. Um, and that affirmation can be what keeps them on course in order to complete the first novel. Once you've completed the first novel and let's hope got it published, then you're condemned to continue. So I, I guess then in terms of what people can do, I'm just thinking about you know, can I ask, uh, giving the readers uh, something to uh, uh, that they can maybe just kind of like get their teeth into straight away. I was wondering, and by the way, I will put links to all of um, Andrew's books, including um, the art of writing fiction um, in the show notes and on my website. So you can just click through and um, grab yourselves uh, a copy and have a read yourself. But um, I was wondering if there's any in your experience, like a particular exercise that you've seen kind of get great results with people in workshops or a particular sort of piece of advice that you've given people and seen. Cause I know having now been on the other side of that in Arvon, where you have this atmosphere where you often see people actually make developments over the five days, actually kind of break through a wall or crack something or read out on that last Friday night. And someone who has frankly been reading work all week, that's been a bit iffy reads out something that, knocks it out of the park and you're like oh you you know you're you're doing the henry higgins thing again you're like mm. by jove she's got it you know <laughs> um it, i want i was wondering if there's any, any a particular exercise or something you've seen that um over the years has mm. often brought something out of writers yeah um there's two in that book um that book um is in a way a writing up of my undergraduate syllabus um, but it also includes a lot of um, what I would say in the classroom when we teach the MA, in, in the workshop when we teach the MA. It's also drawing upon my um, experience of trying to write myself. So it's kind of a memoir about being a writer. Um, and it's also a, a record of what I, I teach when I teach. And there are only so many exercises I do actually use and I had to bulk up the book with some exercises which I hadn't yet used. So there are 80 odd writing exercises as well as the, the narrative that accompanies them. And one of those exercises um, I have never used in the classroom, but I have used personally since I published the book and I've written a novel based upon that exercise. So there's uh, there's a chapter dedicated to the, the discipline, the writerly self-discipline of automatic writing. And in there, th there's one exercise which I think I've called First Things. And what I advocate there is that for 14, no, one morning you get up and you write down as a sentence, your 14 earliest memories, nothing more than a sentence to encapsulate them. And then for the next 14 mornings, you get up and you write as much as you can possibly write to each of those headings in turn. And I tried that when I finished Worthless Men. I was wondering, what am I going to write next? I know I'll try this exercise, which I invented and pretended to teach in the classroom. And I did it. And I over 14 days, I generated um, almost a novel. It was going so well, I did another 14 headings and I ended up with 60,000 words um, in a month, in four weeks. Fuck! Which <laughs> I then worked on for the next two, two, two years. 
Um, it's not the done thing to kind of like mouth you bastard, <laughs> but that's amazing. So, How wonderful! So um, there are also um, various exercises in there to do with point of view, and a lot of my teaching actually um, engages with these quite technical issues, narratological issues. Um, one of which is um, the different um, um, purposes and facilities offered by the different points of view and i have lots of exercises um right in the first person right in the third person right in the second person it's very popular with students um to have the opportunity to write in the you voice and um i can very i can offer a few uh, examples of successful short stories which have been written in the second person there are very few novels written in the second person and so this novel, which I generated out of my earliest memories, I decided was going to be a second person novel. So I've written a novel called Your Fault, Your Fault, um, which will be coming out next May, um, which is entirely based upon my work um, doing my own exercise. There is another exercise in there, um, which is my favorite, all time favorite exercise. And since I became a, a prof of creative writing, I've become occasionally um, um, not itinerant. What's the word for someone who is always on the move, going here, there, and everywhere? It begins with a P. Or it'll come to uh, us. Peregrine. Yes, uh, peripatetic. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I've become a peripatetic professor, and so I've, I've taught uh, workshops in um, in Romania, in Bulgaria, in Greece, in Italy, in China, in Japan, in India, um, various places where I've taught with a translator, and so I've set this exercise. And I've had a translator um, conveying it to the students. And then the results have been read out in the student's original language and translated back to me by the by the translator. And how it goes is I um, show the students pictures of people, just their faces, and they select which person they want. So everybody gets a picture. They choose a picture of a person. And then I give them 20 questions that they have to answer on the page in the voice of the person in the picture. It has to be first person. Um, and it begins with three really, really simple questions. What is your name? How old are you? And what is your profession? Now, you don't answer them uh, simply with uh, bullet points or notes. Uh, my name is Arthur Buttle. I am, 20, uh, I am 57. Um, I am a, a window cleaner. Um, you have to write it as if it's one continuous monologue. And then each question subsequently gets more and more intimate and the end, it ends up with um, when were you last naked in front of another person, something like that. Um, so it takes the, the, the questions, take the, the, the monologue into deeper and deeper territory. So you take those first three questions and the answer might be, uh, my name's Arthur Buttle, I'm 57 years old this week, which is far too old still to be climbing ladders to wash people's windows. And then you continue in that vein. And every time the result, when the students get up to read out their character, they hold up their picture and then they read their monologue, 
which answers the 20 questions without it being obvious that these are 20 answers to 20 questions. It's just a stream of um, information in the voice of a person. And every time it blows me away, it's so moving because they get right inside the person and they get right down to the vulnerabilities of this person that they've invented. And that's why we write fiction in yeah. order to get into the skin, the mind, the experience of someone who does not exist and make them exist so that people who do exist can understand something about themselves and what's deepest in them. And it works every time. It's the best exercise. Andrew, thank you so, so much for giving up your time to come and chat. I've really enjoyed it. It's been lovely to have you. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> and um, everyone who's listening, I will put um, links to uh, all of Andrew's books in the show notes. So um, it'd be lovely if you want to um, click through and get one of them. I really, really like and recommend The Art of Writing Fiction. For those of you who've been asking me, um, and I've had lots and lots of emails from people saying, oh, what can I, I want to continue with um, doing some writing. Or those of you who've done the um, eight-week uh, Couch to 80K writing boot camp and you want more stuff to do and you want to keep going i, I really rec recommend the book like andrew said there's loads and loads of really really good exercises in there um, my favorite one in there is uh the one uh something is happening out there mm. i think it's a fantastic one i won't tell you what it is you'll have to buy the book yourselves and uh, find out but um thank you very much for listening please uh uh, share the show and um, subscribe if you like it as well. And I wish you a very, very successful writing week. <laughs>